This episode of Dirty Linen is proudly supported by Pepe Sayer Australian Cultured Butter, batch churned from single origin cream. And more generally, I think I'm optimistic about the growing awareness of food um, as a political agent for change. Um, there are a lot of people doing such good things with it and so many conversations being had. The more we talk about it and the more we talk about food as an agent for change, the more that we can have meaningful conversations about it. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking to somebody for whom a simple descriptor just simply does not apply because she does so many different things. I could say that Shinyi Lim is the chef at Cafe Freighters in Sydney, but that would really be just the beginning or perhaps the middle of uh, talking about what she does. But anyway, all there is left to do is to welcome Shinyi to Dirty Linen. Hi, Danny. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so looking forward to talking to you. Uh, do, do you want to just start by telling us a bit about yourself? Because I obviously <laughs> am not <laughs> able to do it. No, that's fine. I also know we haven't um, met. So it's, yeah, you know, usually these things um, happen over the course of a conversation. But anyway, I will, um, I can say that I, um, uh, I, you know, I was born and raised in Sydney. I am a first generation Chinese to Malaysian born parents. Um, as you mentioned, I cook currently at Cafe Frida's, um, but also under my own um, personal creative project, uh, Megafauna. Um, I've been, I guess I've been back in Australia for just over a year now, uh, which was definitely not planned. So before this, I was living and cooking in New York uh, for five or so years. Um, and before that, I was uh, a, a practice law for several years. So um, yes, that's, <laughs> I think that's a good start. <laughs> that's a lot. Um, and yeah, so interesting. I want to just go in a million different directions, but perhaps let's start with what you're currently doing in Sydney. Uh, tell mm -hmm. us about Cafe Freitas. Yeah. So Cafe Freitas, um, started actually nine years ago, nine or 10 years ago, uh, by the owner Dave Abram. Uh, he opened a bar. And over the course of 10 years, it kind of was, uh, you know, turned into a bit of a late night music venue and he really built a community around it. So then during COVID, it um, shut down like many businesses and he uh, decided to open up a more food focused venue. And he reached out to me. We'd never met before. We had a couple of mutual friends Um and yeah, just kind of went from there. We just had one conversation really. I met him and his uh, partner, Carla, who is also um, runs a business. And we worked together to create a space that, you know, is a bar, is also a restaurant, um, but uh, also has an amazing sound system. Uh, so it is a restaurant, bar, um, also a music venue. Uh, they've just opened a gallery next door um, and basically we're just trying to build a bit of a uh, I guess multidisciplinary space um, for the community uh, the community of musicians and DJs that um, Dave knows of artists that Carla knows of people in the food industry that we all know um, and yeah I, I think for me it's I'm excited about using it as a platform to work with people that I would love to work with, to um, give opportunities to other cooks um, that might want to do events there, things like that. 
so yeah, it's very open, and I, I think it's really um, great. With I've somehow lucked out by finding two people who are very much on the same page about what we want to do in um, a community. I think I feel like you've been sort of interdiscipl- interdisciplinary for ages, um, and worked across, I guess, so many different, yes, yeah, streams of of connecting people. But I feel like it's very post COVID to sort of bash down the barriers between different ways that people gather and interact and share ideas and share spaces. Um, yeah, I mean, does it does it feel like, you know, this is the time to break down some of those barriers? Um, I think this is definitely a time to kind of re reevaluate what, well, personally for me, maybe not for everyone, but, um, you know, what we are doing and what kind of structures we have worked in the past in that maybe have not been working, especially in like the food industry. Um, you know, things have had to change a lot. People have had to pivot. And um, so just finding different ways to, um, I guess, do things and create things uh, in a way that makes sense, in a way that doesn't just benefit yourself, but benefits like a broader group of people. I think that's become per- quite in- important, I would like to think. Mm. Um, yeah. What kind of food are you doing there? Um, at Cafe Frida's, I am doing <laughs> food that's quite, I guess, indefinable or <laughs> undefinable. Um, I don't cook any specific kind of cuisine. I'd say I'm very curious about um, food generally. And I am, you know, it's a small menu that kind of crosses across a lot of different um borders, different cuisines, uh, not that I'm an expert in any of them, but I use it as an opportunity to experiment um, with me and my team. And yeah, I'm just, you know, it's a, people are receptive to that. Um, the kitchen is, there are many constraints in the kitchen. So working within those constraints is also uh, defines the menu a lot. Um, but yeah, basically food that's a little offbeat, not too serious, um, bit adventurous, uh, probably not, you know, the best food you can find in Sydney by any means, but certainly um, things that are very personal to me and a personal experience. Mm, well, okay, if well. I came today, what would you tell me to have? Um, I would tell you to have the mussels with wood ear. So wood ear is a uh, black fungus that's often, you know, I grew up eating because it's very common in Chinese cuisine. Um but uh, here I've combined it with mussels, which have been lightly pickled, and there's a sesame mayonnaise and some chrysanthemum greens, which are also very much synonymous with um, Asian cuisines. Uh, I might also tell you to have the brisket uh, that, that comes with mole, which um, I learned how to make when I spent some time in Mexico at the beginning of 2019, or tw- sorry, 2020. And that was a trip that was really inspiring um, incredibly inspiring from a uh, food education and cultural perspective. Um, I was blown away. So, yeah, my what I'm cooking right now are things that I'm just very, I guess, uh, that are just from my recent experiences. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm very happy to have those. Yeah, I'm going to have everything, but I will start with those because they do sound, yes, <laughs> delicious. 
the menu does change. So if you do come in uh, anytime soon, let me know and I can, I'll probably have to point you to something else. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure that whatever you're cooking on the day is what I will be very delighted by. Um, <laughs> so you've got lots of other projects. Tell us about Happy Family Night Market. Yeah, so um, Happy Family Night Market was actually a thing started in in New York by a couple of women, a couple of female friends of mine. Um, it has continued, but it began first as a food festival in its first year, mostly food, with um, art and education as well. And then in its second year, which is when I came on board, we really grew it to like a bigger um one day festival, one day annual festival that celebrates uh, Asian communities and the diaspora in uh, America. Um, and I was, I was leading the food program. So I basically kind of set up a whole food festival. Um, and I went out and researched and found a bunch of um, really amazing cooks and chefs that wanted to be a part of the one day festival. But in addition to the food aspects, there was also, you know, a music curator who was curating um, Asian artists and performers through the day. There was a education, like a panel, panel discussion program. Um, there was a film program. There was a uh, arts, like an art program as well, public art program. So each of these different programs had different people curating um, what was going to be showing or playing. And yeah, it, it was an incredible experience. Um, obviously, after 2020 or 2020's festival was called off, um, I'm not sure when it will be able to pick up, but it's since kind of morphed into um, more of a platform for elevating uh, emerging Asian American artists, um, mostly American, but also around the world and using that to, yeah, I guess like show their work um, and basically celebrate what they're doing. So did it come out of, um, <clears throat> I mean, was it, was there a sort of positive impetus for, Happy Family Night Market, just celebrating culture, or was it a response to racism and marginalisation, or was it a, a mixture of the two? I think at the beginning, I I'm not sure. I'd have to you know chat to my friend who's a founder, but um, her name's Phoebe Tran. But I think at the beginning, it was more of a celebration for sure. There was always a very positive aspect to it, um, and it was all about celebrating celebration. You know, it was obviously anti-Asian racism has been happening for um, years and years and years, but I, you know, it's only recently that it's really become something that people are talking about in a more open way and this preceded that as far as I'm, yeah. as far as my experiences are. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, we've chatted a lot about racism on this podcast. Can you tell us about moving to New York and how race intersected with that? Uh, yeah, so I, when I, before I moved to New York, I'd say that I hadn't really thought about my race or my ethnicity very much. Um, it was very much, uh, you know, I grew up like, I don't see race, that kind of approach, which I think is very prevalent here um, for um, immigrants to adopt that approach. Um, so going to America and I guess entering into like a creative industry as well, um, really opened my eyes uh, to 
my my race because I met other people, especially through Happy Family Night Market and through the chefs that I met, many of which were female and of Asian background who were really using their food um, and their art to explore and celebrate their culture. So just being around people like that and having the conversations that you do um, was a real, uh, I guess, slow personal reckoning for me. And I really started to like grapple with um, my identity and that, that continues very much so, especially since coming back to Australia and it's like, now I have the, you know, the experience that I had in New York and returning to Australia and being around my friends here who, um, you know, are different people and I'm yet to, I guess, find the, the, the crew that I had there in New York. Maybe I never will. New York is definitely full of some really incredible people. Um, but, yeah, that, that journey of, like, personal exploration and, like, cultural identity continues for me but it really started in in New York I mean what is it about I mean what's the difference between here and there that is it just like that they're ahead in these conversations I mean is it that Australians just struggle to um process these thoughts I mean yeah what is that yeah that's uh, um it's a hard question and something I've thought a lot about. I I would say race in America is very front and center. It's very in your face. There's bigger communities of, um, you know, black people, Asian people, different um, from different uh, countries. It's just bigger communities. So there's just more um, conversation as well. And I think, uh, it's much. It seems to be much more political there. Um, I also think that <clears throat> uh, I, I also think that things in America are not as, generally speaking, not as good as they are here. Australia, it's very safe and secure for the most part. Not for everybody, place to live, and um, so you you don't have to struggle as much, and therefore you don't you don't need to fight as much. You don't need to have jarring conversations with people. And yeah, whereas in America, everything is just like, especially in New York, everything is just like in your face everywhere all the time. And there's people that are really, um, you know, really interesting people doing interesting work there and, and everyone's meeting new people all the time. So you just happen upon a more diverse, um, network of people in New York than you would in Australia. I find being back in Australia, I, you know, I know my family and my friends and my community. Um, it's a little harder to, to find, uh, to come up to, to cross paths with people that are not already within your circles, I think. Mm. I mean, does it make you like having, having those experiences in New York and then coming back here, do you look at things with a different lens now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a little frustrating being back. I mean, I am very happy to be back, and I love Australia, and I don't want this to be like a you know poo poo Australia kind of thing. But um, I have experienced some frustrations in just the kind of conversations that are being had here. Obviously, there are people who are doing really amazing work, and I love the podcast that you do. Um, 
And this is an example where I'm like very pleasantly, you know, like surprised and happy to come across these things because it shows that it is happening. It's just harder to find. Um, yeah. So what are some of the things that you've, that you've seen that have frustrated you? Um, I think just, I think just, just the conversation, the, not the lack of, but the slowness for, for conversations to come up and for, for, I guess, uh, institutions to, I think, like kind of question or be open to criticism, um, to be like more self-reflexive about like what problems might lie within their businesses or, you know, the way they organize themselves. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't want to say I, I, I'm still figuring out what, what, things are like in Australia and I'm not an expert and it's, you know, I'll never know entirely. So what I say is just like my initial perspective, but I'm super open to being proven wrong. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're all, we're all living in our own perspective. I think, you know, it's, it's really interesting, you know, I think you're so right in, well, you say, you know, Australia is pretty good and I think you're right. Australia is pretty good for, you know, a, a pretty large number of people. It's, you know, hard for lots of people in lots of different ways, but we are lucky in so many ways. And I feel like there is this sort of reluctance to point to things that need changing and fixing and reconsidering and like smashing apart because things could be worse. Um, so I guess that's, it's that sort of, there is a sort of complacency that comes from okayness because it's a lot of work to create change and it's exhausting for people who are I guess battling against that complacency so yeah it's I mean you don't want to be in a situation where things are so terrible that um you know that 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 people are forced to take a position and and act um yeah, I mean, I'm sort of thinking of Hong Kong as I say that, and you think, well, you don't want things to be so bad, but that people, you know, are on the streets and, you know, then, you know, bad things are flowing from that. I mean, they're getting persecuted. Um, like you don't want things to be that bad, but you do want people to take a stand when they are. So, yeah, it's yeah. It's, um, it's complicated. It is. And, you know, I think because uh, the the pain and suffering of people and of um, marginalized groups is it's kind of like swept to the side or you it's just not as visible here and so you're not faced with you're not confronted by these issues in the way that you might be in new york or america or other countries um and i think that's a big part of it as well this episode of dirty linen is proudly supported by peppy sayer australian cultured butter Batch churned from single origin. You know, the origin biggest trade. highlight is that people like our product. You know, when someone says, oh, I bought your butter and I made this or it tasted amazing, that's it. It's done. Uh, I'm, I'm on, I'm, I'm in heaven. And that's uh, people that know me, they know that all, all you have to do is pay Peppy a compliment about the butter and he's whatever you want, he'll, he'll give you whatever you want him to do, he'll do. People that complain, we can't thank them enough because they're the ones that have that have changed our business and helped us understand that we need to do better. For more information, go to peppysayer.com.au. 
So let's talk, I mean, how can food or hospitality have a role in this journey towards social justice? Um, I, I think that food, food is something that touches everybody in a personal way. Um, I think food reflects who we are. It shapes who we are and it shapes how we see other people. So it's very personal. It's very, um, yeah, it, it, I think it, because of that, it is a very useful way to, I guess, uh, it's a, it's an agent for how we can change or how we can kind of ask ourselves questions, even just like, you know, having, having events where you talk about food and, or you bring people in to share a meal, it's that can be a part of like social change. And, um, and I think also just using, I don't know, it's, it, it can be a tool, but it's also, I think, a bit more dynamic than just a tool. Um, I think there's really uh, there's so many opportunities that we can educate and be educated about different cultures, uh, different groups of people, different communities, how they work, how they've grown up, everything through food. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm just thinking about like a dish, just the way that one dish can tell such a, a story. I'm thinking about this Filipino meal that I went to recently where you can see different influences from the different colonising powers that came through the Philippines and, you know, you can sort of reflect on that, you know, that history that, you know, was, you know, definitely of uh, good and bad impact. Um, it's great to get the noodles but it's, you know, bad to be oppressed. Um yeah, so it is, I suppose it is something, food is something you can go, you can just, you know, it's sort of, it's a mindset, isn't it? And sometimes you just want dinner and sometimes you, you're you up for that kind of deeper exploration of all the different um, strands that, that a dish or a meal can can bring. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like everyone to, th- obviously you can't engage in debate or something over every single meal, but I would like people to be a bit more mindful about the food that they eat, especially when they go to uh, a restaurant um, run by a different uh, group of people that they might may not, you know, necessarily personally be connected with. But like thinking about food and thinking about where it comes from, not just stuffing a dumpling down your <laughs> down your gullet. <laughs> um, yeah, food has history and it has a lot of power and has also upheld, you know, different power structures. And I think the Philippines is. A huge example of that, and I um, did a meal through through family meal, which I haven't, you know, we haven't talked about yet. But I did a Filipino meal, and I always do a lot of research behind each of these meals, and um, it was just like really eye opening. And I didn't even scrape the surface of what what food means for Filipino people, um, but exactly what you said, like they are at once you know, a colonized country um, that has experienced a lot of pain over the years and a lot of different um, colonial kind of oppression. But they also are like a group of people that celebrate them, their culture so much. Like I don't know, I don't think I had another kind of group of people that really showed up to support their 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 culture by buying family meal. Um, 
Sorry, I totally brought in something else that I hadn't even given any background to. But it, Well, it, no, I wanted to ask about family <laughs> meals. So this is the perfect segue. Tell us what it is. Um, yeah, it was a – so it started off during COVID, as many things did. Um, it, it was a meal service, a meal delivery service, which I started basically because – I think it, it began really as a uh, in at around the same time as when the Black Lives Matter movement really um, was experiencing resurgence in the states, and I was feeling quite hopeless, didn't know what to do. So, this it was something I'd been thinking about doing for a while. Um, so, essentially, it's it's like a small meal delivery service which explored a different cuisine every week. Um, and was kind of to be eaten shared family style um and it probably ran i think for about 15 15 weeks not every week because it was quite a lot but uh, i did it about 15 times and yeah i was able to raise a bunch of money through that which felt really um productive and yeah well it was also a creative kind of exercise for me as well wow and did you do that was that before you um, joined up with Cafe Freitas? Like, did you do that, like, off your own back? Yeah, I did it. Um, I, I did it. I uh, probably started around May or something like that. But yeah, it was before Cafe Freitas. But I think it was helpful in, in. Um, I I think through that I met people and um, I was able to feed people that somehow then linked me across to Dave and Carla. So. Yeah, it's obviously had it, it had a lot of positive impacts in um, my life. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's it sounds like an amazing project. Um, did you? How did you choose the the cuisines or, or what to cook? Um, I think it began. It started very you know whatever cuisine I wanted to cook at the time. Um, but then after I had kind of exhausted my first four or five where it was just, you know, my own curiosity, I was like looking further afield, just thinking about food that I'd always been somewhat interested in um, and just taking the time to research and compose a meal that made sense for that kind of format as well. So, um, yeah, it, it, there wasn't really any rhyme or reason to which cuisines I chose, but I also, you know, thought about I didn't want to do French cuisine because there's so many amazing French restaurants out there and I um I'm not I'm not versed in French cooking. Um likewise Italian, there's some really incredible Italian restaurants out there. So I really wanted to explore cuisines that weren't that I personally hadn't um seen a lot of or I felt like were a little bit more obscure. Um, so different regions of China, for example. Um, I actually did do an Italian Italian family meal, but it was uh, around Puglian food, so cucina povera, which is a food of the the poor, I guess. Um, and that that was inspired by a trip I'd been able to take to Puglia, uh, I guess, a year or so before that. So, yeah. I love – you just made me think of um... – I'm not sure if it's Pugliese or it's from another part of the south, but it's the the Gran Asso, so it's like the burnt flour. Is that was, did you encounter that? Mm, I didn't actually. No, that sounds oh, really so good. It's um, yeah, I'll have to. I don't know. Someone can tell me where it's from, but um, so it's from 
like the 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 peasants who didn't weren't able to buy as much grain as they wanted they would um glean like the the burnt bits of um grain from the fields after they they after they'd been um harvested then they'd burn the fields and the people would go through and t- and take what whatever was left and they'd also take the scrapings from the bottom of the oven so it's like this blackened flour that would then be used to make pasta that's like this dark pasta um so I had it at a restaurant in Melbourne, which isn't there anymore, called Lello. Um, and, yeah, I just think, I mean, you know, that just tells such a story, right? You know, like it's delicious because it's got this sort of, you know, toasty notes to it. It looks really different because it's really dark, um, but it just tells such a story, I guess, of, you know, of the of the poverty, like to, to, to go through the fields or to scrape the bottom of the oven to get the flour. Like that is you're in need to do that, but then to be so resourceful as to make something out of it that then becomes something from that culture that you can celebrate like ah I just love it it's so resonant no that sounds so interesting I will definitely have to look that up (laughs) well I should I should have come to this conversation uh with more thoughts about it but oh well it's all a journey um So, Xinyi, I'm always so interested in people who've made a big career turnabout. Um, I'd love to learn what sort of lawyer you were and why you made the shift, but also what you've brought with you from the law um, into your, you know, current range of careers and what you've been glad to leave behind. Yeah, um, so I I guess going back to the first part of your question, I... um, I studied law in Sydney and I, you know, during university, I was very interested in international law and international human rights. So I spent some time in The Hague um, working at one of the international criminal tribunals. And then I quickly realized that that really wasn't for me, that there were people that were far better at it and more passionate about it than than I was. So I came back and I um, had a job at... Uh, Herbert Smith Freehills, which is a big uh, international law company, law firm, I guess you call them. Um, And I ended up working in public-private partnerships, so government infrastructure projects basically. So things like Sydney Light Rail, I guess everyone would know, um, uh, hospitals, um, toll roads, projects like that. So those involved big contracts, um, working with government, which was – you know, different to working with other commercial clients. Um, I spent a few years doing that and I spent some time on secondment in New South Wales Treasury as well, which was an experience. Um, And then after all of the exciting kind of projects came to an end, um, I just realized, I mean, I, I knew from the beginning that law wasn't for me, but it got to a point where I was like, okay, now it's just stretching on, so I need... I need to do something else. And I took a year's leave of absence, um, I guess, on the with the intention or out, outward intention of returning. But I think everyone probably knew that I wasn't going to be coming back. Um, and that's when I went to New York um, and found a job cooking in a cafe restaurant there. Um, and, yeah, I, I honestly have never looked back since. That's amazing. So you just got a job cooking and you had no experience or training. Yeah, pretty much. I I think that um, I just had passion and I was pretty persistent. You know, it was kind of like that attitude of I'm in this country that no one knows me, so I'm just going to 
go for it. And, you know, thankfully I found people that were really willing to give me a go. And um, I, I, I'm not going to lie, I did use the fact that I was a lawyer as some kind of tool to suggest that, you know, I could help with operations and things like that. Not that government infrastructure has anything to do with running a business, but for some reason lawyers have that um, that perception of there is that perception of lawyers um and that was one interesting thing that I found like from a personally I I when I was an actual lawyer I never wanted to be defined as a lawyer I never introduced myself as like oh I'm a lawyer I was always like oh I'm working in a law firm or whatever and then going to New York and finding myself in a very different um field of work and I started to use I, I I became quite attached to using my background as um, a way to dif- differentiate myself in a way that I'd never done when I was actually a lawyer. That's so, so interesting. Yeah, it was like I, I realized that I was actually quite attached to the status of being a lawyer and it was quite confronting for me because I never, I never was that proud of being a lawyer. So anyway, I've since let that go because I don't necessarily feel like I need to prove myself um, as much in my work. Wow. Yeah. Is there anything that you still like that, you know, is useful in your current work? Uh, I think communication and written skills, probably um, like attention to detail, but not in too fastidious a way, things like that. I'm sure that there is more, but um, I, I don't know if I was a very good lawyer anyway. So it's more just, the knowing that I had that experience and also just knowing what it's like to deal with clients, you know, and write emails and things like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I think when you, when you take those skills for granted, it probably doesn't seem like much, but I know that through the pandemic, you know, I was, cause I was trying to help restaurants like, you know, disentangle, I don't know, whatever it was, JobKeeper or, um, you know, the laws around landlords, um, and, you know, I was looking at, re- re- I've done, a, I did a couple of years of a law degree, then then didn't complete it. But, you know, to be reading legislation as a lay person is, or, you know, some of those documents that come out of Treasury or that, like to be able to filter that information and make sense of it is uh, definitely pretty useful during a crisis such as the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I, def- I do take that for granted. Um, I think about that sometimes because sometimes I'll have, friends or family ask me for help and I'm like you know I don't actually do law anymore but I think I'm just used to seeing a lot of words on a page and kind of sifting through it to make sense of it all and like summarize it and that Mm -hmm. definitely um is a useful skill to have yeah yeah I think even to not be afraid of it something when it's like clause 34 part 7 sub part c I think like a lot of people would just be glazed over at that point you'd just be like okay yeah flick to the page yeah (laughs) I actually had to help my um sister and brother in well they never ended up actually getting married because their wedding got cancelled but um through the yeah this is I I came back for Australia to Australia for for their wedding but oh, um they yeah they had to they needed to like figure out what was going to happen with the venue that they'd hired and everything so I ended up actually really putting my lawyer hat on for the first time in years to help them with that and it was I kind of got into it which was a bit weird <laughs> um, yeah yeah well, it's I mean it's 
yeah, I guess when you've got a, an aim and you're able to, you know, get to it because of your skills, I think that's that's just great. It's going to be satisfying. Um, but speaking of your writing prowess, I love your story in Counter Magazine about mediocrity. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, thank you. It's very nice of you to say. Um, I started so through the pandemic, I, like a lot of people, um, was baking sourdough and um, I did this project where I basically sent out a bunch of sourdough starter and I asked for everyone's, for a picture of everyone's first loaves back. So I started receiving all these pictures of people's first loaves and everyone was obviously very proud and rightly proud because it was really such a process to bake a loaf of sourdough. Um, and they were very endearing loaves of sourdough, very endearing photos and beautiful stories and beautiful emails that I get back um, from people telling me about their process. Um, but it just got me thinking, I think, of how a result that might be so mediocre, <laughs> which is it's probably horrible to say, but I think most people's first loaves of bread is quite mediocre. Um, yeah it still really means something and it's, you know, very much in the process of there's so much to be gained from the process of making that sourdough loaf that like you can't take that away from the end product. And so it was also at a time when I was feeling pretty depressed and disheartened and, you know, not really sure what was happening or what I was going to do. It was really in the midst of lockdown. Um, and I guess I just had all these thoughts and feelings running around and I just started writing something about how it was okay to be mediocre and that we didn't need to be constantly eat, achieving things and like being super creative or um, being the best at everything now. Like none of that really mattered anymore because we're all in lockdown. Um, and yeah, I think I've always held myself to very high standards and put a lot of pressure on myself and just kind of coming to that, uh, to, you know, just like being a bit more at peace with not achieving things and not um, being the best at something or trying to be the best at something was a real process and I think continues to be. But, yeah, just trying to – it was a bit of like, you know, trying to take it, take, to take it a bit more easy, be a bit more easy on myself and asking everybody else to be easy on themselves, especially during – this time or during that time and you're still during this time because we're still coming out of it so mm. it's definitely a time to be kind to ourselves I, I really think that I found those photos of those loaves so moving like you know they're just so they're just so humble and human and I think there is this sense that you know our hobbies have to be this you know just yet another arena of excellence that you know we can again Instagram and I don't know like the, I guess hobbies used to be just like this this other thing that was often very private and um, it didn't need to reach any sort of standard and I think there is definitely something in uh, I suppose it's just like permission to just be you know like pretty average at something or just to be yeah yeah you definitely say it better than I do I mean for sure in, in New York especially it's like everybody is making a business out of something monetizing a hobby and and I was doing that myself, you know, I was, I love cooking and I was trying to make a living out of it. Um, and I had a friend who everything she 
was passionate about, she turned into a business, which is quite funny, but also incredibly admirable because she's also doing a thousand things. Um, so yeah, I think just kind of trying to return back to this idea of just doing things because you enjoy them and not because you have to or because you want to be the best at it, um, not because anyone else is going to see what you're doing. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. And I think the pandemic and lockdown was really a time for that because no one was able to show anyone anything that they were doing unless it was on Instagram. But yeah. Yeah. Maybe we need like this new, like humble, not hustle movement. Yeah. That's hashtag. (laughs) 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 Like I'm really super bad at sourdough and I've got like this really black starter in the back of the fridge. Um, And my loaves, like I reckon my loaves have, have always been pretty bad, like probably like three out of 10, but still like they would be inhaled within about 10 minutes by the family. Cause it's just, I don't know, like it still smells good and it's still homemade. And so what it's like, I am just like, they're like, 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 like I have to like hacking away at the crust, like I'm chopping down a huge oak in a forest. <laughs> like it's just all so bad, but it's uh, super delicious and, um, yeah, gets eaten. And it's so um, rewarding anyway, regardless. It's so of rewarding. Yeah. yeah, it is rewarding um, <laughs> to be so bad at something. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you said, you know, that things were, you weren't feeling super good about things at that point, but how are you feeling now? Like are you feeling optimistic? Um, I am actually, uh, you know, it goes up and down. I think opening the restaurant was a huge, um, process and continues to be one, but we're definitely getting to a place that feels a bit more, um, steady and sustainable. And I'm optimistic about what we can do with it, um, and what we will do with it. So we're planning to start, um, a bit of a, a chef pop-up series uh, once a month and I'd like to work with um, some social enterprises to also bring in uh, some you know refugee chefs for example through welcome merchant it's something that we're in discussion about hopefully it works out um, and also I'd like to bring back family meal in some way uh, to the restaurant Again, these are all just still in discussion um, and, you know, things have to make sense from a business perspective. But it definitely, you know, if there's anything that I've kind of um, I've kind of realised through the pandemic is like how, how important it is to incorporate some kind of social justice element into my work or how important it is to me anyway to do that. And it's much easier to do that from the beginning than to try to introduce it like midway. So um, I am optimistic about, yeah, using this space and using food to kind of reach more people. Um, And more generally, I think I'm optimistic about the growing awareness of food um, as a political agent for change. Um, There are a lot of people doing such good things with that and so many conversations being had, you know, as I mentioned, including on this podcast, um, that bring me a lot of hope. Um, and I just, you know, I, I think that it can, well, the more we talk about it and the more we talk about food as an agent for change, the more that we can have meaningful conversations about it and um, we can connect with more people and not just in a, oh, let's drink and be merry kind of way, but in a real meaningful way where we, 
connect with people's different cultures and we, um, you know, allow people to, to, I guess, proverbially have a seat at the table uh, or actually have a seat at the table um, and talk about their food and their background um, rather than othering these different cultures. So, yeah, I, I'm optimistic about all that and I, I wasn't really, especially a few weeks ago um, during the all the news in America and like anti-Asian racist attacks and things like that. But I am more optimistic now. So, yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a lot and it's it's very big, but I, I share your optimism and I think you're so right. It's it just, just even to sit down at a table with the notion that this is it's an opportunity for learning, whether it's about another culture or whether it's about, you know, the supply chain of the produce or whether it's about what grows in what season. I think even just to have for people to sit down with that, that curiosity and that, that though, just that this is an opportunity for questions and conversations. I think that so much can come from that. And you're such a, yeah, you just, I'm so, I'm, I'm sorry you got stuck here, but I'm kind of glad that New York doesn't have you and Australia does because I'm really excited for what you're bringing to, um, to food culture here. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say? Um, no, I, I just, you know, I'm just really grateful that I stumbled across your podcast. Again, I'm still trying to like learn and meet people and, you know, just see what's happening here. And it's really, um, amazing. And yeah, I, I am just excited for what's to come. Yeah, basically. So no, not specifically. I think we covered a lot. <laughs> we did. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for yeah going there and um, yeah being open to this conversation. It's been a real pleasure and honour to have you on the show. So thank you so much, Sinyi. Thank you, Danny. Take care. All right. You too. Bye. Thank you. See ya. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. Peace.